Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chabruta and Gordon. Our dap today, Masachat Beta, dap Chav Aleph, page 21. So again, a very, very long dap. We're only going to have time to pull out a couple of things. Um, but I was very intrigued by this beginning section. So Rav Avia the Elder raised the following question before Rav Huna. So the question here is, is that if you have an animal that is owned half by a Jew and half by a non-Jew, are you allowed to shakt it on Yom Tov? Amar le mutar. Amar le v'chi ma bein zet l'nedarim v'nedavot. Amar le or v'para. So initially, Rav Huna says to him, it's allowed. You are allowed to shakt that animal on, uh, on Yom Tov. Rav Avia says to him, okay, but then what's the difference between this and what we learned on the previous page about nedarim and nedavot, right? Nidarim and Nidavot, in a certain way, are also jointly owned because part of the animal is going to be eaten by the owner, part of the animal is going to be eaten by the priest. So they're and they're not allowed to be slaughtered. Okay. And so he's sort of trying to say, well, like maybe this joint partnership between the Jew and the non Jew is similar to the joint partnership of Nidarim and Nidavot between the Jew and the Kohen. And so, um, sort of wanting to distract Ravavia or like not to have a straight answer for him. He says, Orva Parach, he goes, look, there's a there's a bird in the sky. Like he's basically saying, like, pay attention to something else. Kinefak, right? So when he leaves, um Amarle Rabba Bure, right? Rabba, his his this his son basically says to him, right? Love Haini Rav Avia Saba Demishtabachle. Um so he says to him, you know, was was this not Rav Avia the elder? Right, who you would say is a great man. In other words, it's basically saying to him, why did you sort of, uh, you know, mar begava degava rabo who, right? He's a great man. Sorry, I didn't finish reading that whole sentence there. So he's basically saying, why did you evade his question? Why did you not answer what he wanted? Amarle, um, he says back to him, umasha vedle ani hayom, samchuni vaashishut, rabtuni, betapuchim, uba mine milsa, debai tama. So he says, what should I have done for him? And then he says, today I am, and now he quotes a pasuk basically from Shir HaShirim, chapter two, verse five, let me lean against the stout trunks, let me couch among the apples. What the Mepharshim explained is, is that what he's basically saying is, is that he's exhausted, he's tired, right? He needs to lean against something, he, he needs support, he's tired, and that the idea is, is that he's so busy with other matters, you know, being the rabbi of the community, he he didn't he couldn't answer this and he asked me something that right the that requires sort of reasoning and he couldn't really give him an answer right away. Now I think it says something interesting about Rabbah that he couldn't just say you know I have to think about it and instead he sort of like distracts him. Sorry, not Rabbah, but Rav Huna. It's also interesting that his son Rabbah notices this about him and you know sort of wants to ask, well, like what's the story with that? Why couldn't you just? answer him. So then the Gemara wants to actually say, you know, Vitama, right? What's the actual, you know, Vitama, my behema chatsio shogoy, vichatsio shayisrael, mutar lishachta biyom tov, diyavshar likazai basar below shkita, right? So the reason for the difference is the following, is that an animal that's jointly owned, that's half of the non-Jew and half of the Jew, right? It has to be slaughtered on a festival because otherwise you're not going to be able to get a kazayit of meat without slaughtering it. Even if the Jew only wants to eat a very small part of the meat, he has to shacht it or you won't be able to use the animal at all. 
So it doesn't matter that part of the animal might be owned by a non-Jew, right? Aval nizar min nizavot, asur l'shachtan, biyom tov, dekonim, ki kazachu mishukan, gabua kazachu. But it's pro- you're not allowed to slaughter these nadarim and nidavot on a festival because ultimately there's not really a joint ownership. And the priests, when they get their, their part of it, right? And also when the, the regular, you know, the, the Israelite, right? The Israel gets their part of it. They're really getting what? Zachu mishochan gabo kazachu. They get their portion from the table from the of table. most high. Right? Which basically means that actually... The whole korban really belongs to Hashem. And those who partake in it are considered to be sort of like guests or they're borrowing something from him. And you're not allowed to slaughter an animal on a chag that's really for the sake of God. So I think we learn a couple of things here. First of all, this whole interaction between Rav Huna, this, you know, this uh, Rav Avia and his son, I think is just interesting from a psychological point of view that, I, again, I, I don't quite understand why Rav Huna was not willing to tell him. He need a little bit of time. Then we get the Gemara sort of stepping in, giving the reason. And it's making a comment about the roles of Nidarim and Nidavot. That even though we get to eat the, Nidar, the part of the meat of the Nidarim and the Nidavot, there's something about it when you sort of make a promise that you're going to, you know, either through a vow or you designate a gift, all of it belongs to God. And the fact that you get to eat any of it is really just that sort of like God is extending a gift to you. And so I think as we, you know, think through some of these different korbanot and what they mean, right? Because there's even discussion about which korban brings us simcha, right? These korbanot fulfill different obligations. This korban, even though we're going to eat the meat, seems the Gemariah is basically explicitly saying entirely belongs to God. Okay. So here's my question. Did you feel that this was a case that was, you know, the kind of thing that really might have come up? Or did you feel that this was like a hypothetical? Because I'm feeling that this stuff is about re- real stuff, not just hypotheticals. I would agree with you. I think this stuff was about real stuff and this seemed to have been practical. And I feel by the fact that he didn't answer him is almost a proof that it was practical. Because if it was a theoretical, okay, you could sort of think it out. But like, it's not really giving a psaac. The fact that he wasn't willing to do it, I think, means he thought it was a real question. Right. I agree with you. I raise this question because I want to jump towards the bottom of Ahmed Aleph, where there's a whole set of the whole passage of the Gemara seems to me to be about a very clear, practical situation that took place. And the questions then are, you know, what do you do when this is your practical situation? So I'm going to tell you all, you know, first off the daf, and then I'll read it inside. Basically, what happens is you've got you know, a village with Jews who live there and it's going to be Yantif. And then there are non-Jewish military troops who are, you know, serving in the area and they come to your town and they want you to provide the flour or provide the bread um, for for them, meaning their troops, their military troops. This is their uh, commissioning, so to speak, or requisitioning, I guess is the right word. Um, they're requisitioning food from the Jewish residents, but now it's Yantif, and now what can you do? So let's just see this inside, because I think that I would raise my eyebrows at this as a hypothetical. I will explain, because if it were a hypothetical, oh, let me, nowadays, when people want to, you know, talk about an extreme example, the extreme example is always, nowadays, the Nazis, right? With, with you know, 
it's not necessarily a good example because it's sometimes too extreme. And with lots of great, you know, reverence and respect for anybody who truly suffered at the hands of the Nazis, we're not, I don't mean it as a crass example. I mean that, you know, the examples of like, would you ever tell a lie? to my door and asked if my you know if someone was home i would say no and therefore you're allowed to lie under certain circumstances that's what i mean where there's but that kind of thing military troops as a example of an extreme case in the gemara we have not seen this which is why i think that this is you know this really happened so they raise this dilemma before rav huna hani b'nei vaga kimcha so they, they were in, they're Jewish re- residents in this vaga, which seems to be a village, right? And and there is an imposition. Uh, I don't know if it's a punishment or just, as I said, requisition. The obligation to pl- provide kimcha, which is flour, but it really means the bread, to the bnei chela, the the military troops. Mahal lafota biyomtov. Can they do this baking on yantif? Meaning, in general, you can't bake on Shabbos. We know that. Cross that off the list. But on yantif, you can bake, halachically speaking. You know, it's part of the cooking that you can do on yantif. But can you bake for this population? So Rav Huna's answer is as follows. It says, if those, if the people, the Jews, can give the bread to via a child, if they can give them bread to a child, and the and the soldiers aren't going to worry about that. They're not going to say, oh, it's too small, oh, it's too this, oh, it's too that. They're going to accept it that way. Then, indeed, the children, apparently, and the, the I think it's that the grown-ups could bake the amount that would be fit for a child. Um, but if the soldiers are not going to let anybody else partake of their bread, then it's going to be pro- prohibited. So the implication is, you know, if you could bake the this same bread to include the children, and now the children are going to, so to speak, share it with the military, um, that would be acceptable. But if not, if they're particular, if the soldiers are particular, then you can't bake them the bread on festivals. Now, let's be careful. This case seems to be regularly scheduled life. Right, this is not a time of a gzerat shmad. This is not a time of a life. That's not where it's not the Nazis. It's not what we're talking about. I say it's an extreme case because you've got military expectation. You know, there's an expectation of the of the non-Jewish state surrounding you. Not it's not um it's not the same. It's not to the degree of I don't know of fear in terms of the pressure cooker of being on demand in this way. So now the Gemara says, what do you mean, Rav Huna, you're being too lenient? So Shimon HaTimni didn't cut one night when it was Yentif, he didn't come to the Beit Midrash. So then in the morning, Rabbi Huda Ben Bava found him. And says to me, So whether this is, you know, collegial or friendly, checking up on him, or, is it, or or true concern, he says, why weren't you there in the Beit Midrash? Amarlo, Baleshet Baal So he says the um the Baleshet, the 
it's a squad. It's some it's some unit of the military. Um, Balash in modern Hebrew could be a detective. This is the people. They come to the city and they're searching somehow. What they want to the implications that they want us. They want to um, They want to plunder all of the city. And so then they he says instead we slaughtered a calf that calmed them down. We fed them and then they left. Meaning it was okay. We took care of it. Meaning this is a very 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 good reason. To miss Night Seder. Um, and then Amarlo, Rav Yudim and Bava says back to, to Shimon Hatimni, Maybe you lost more than you gained in this, you know, protecting them. Because really, when you're dealing with cooking on Yantif, it's supposed to be for the Jews. That's supposed to be preparing food for the non Jews. So maybe the same thing, this, this, Shafting of the calf that they did, they shouldn't have done so. So the one says, one second, weren't you know, wasn't some aspect of the calf going to be fit to be eaten by the Jews, and then they could give everything else to the non-Jews? Meaning, there's a tension here, and the Gemara, I think, pre- presents this whole case as being the the presentation of it to me is very matter of fact, and yet. I think that there, you know, there's real an, a really an elevated concern to the extent that, you know, Shimon ben Hatimni is not going to blow it off. He's not going to blow off the concern. He's going to make sure that everything is taken care of because, hello, there's going to be otherwise there's going to be plundering in the village. Um, it does seem to be an extreme situation that does not seem to have been, if it's the norm, it's not discussed that much. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I I actually thought the back and forth on this was interesting. That you know he came up, you know, that initially there's sort of this very makel answer, and the Gemara really comes wanting to be very strict about this. And I I think there's a there is a little bit of an interesting theme here about sort of the interplay between like our holidays and non Jews. <laughs> um, yes. You know, again, because of the pace of the dot, I don't have enough time to think about it but as much as I would like to, um, but there's something interesting going on here on this staff, you know, and also that we sort of toggle between like a case that seems one of partnership and friendship, right? What if you own an animal together? So you would sort of have to assume there was sort of some type of nice relationship there and then going to one of foreign soldiers, which obviously right. was an antagonistic relationship. Or, or at the very least, you know, subject thing like they they don't get to say no right they don't get to really say no and you know so it's interesting that it's sort of like no but you should have said no i (laughs) was kind of shocked by as an answer you know is the challenge but again this amud olive really the whole um the whole dot is talking about the relationship between non-jews and our holidays and again this idea of sort of like that you can't just do anything for a non-jew my modern self is somewhat uncomfortable with a little bit of what's going on here. Can't quite articulate why, but I'm not, I, I, I'm uncomfortable with it. <laughs> I'm going to continue now now to the, uh, we have some Mishnahs on Amud Bet that we're just going to go through quickly. Again, another Beit Shammai, a Beit Helumachloket. Beit Shammai Amrim, lo yachem adam chamin l'raglav, ela t'nim kein ruim l'shdiya, u Beit Helumatirin osa adam midura, mitzchamim kenegda. So Beit Shammai says you can't heat water on a Yom Tov in order to wash his feet unless it's also fit for drinking. Because in other words, the reason why you can light a fire is for the sake of preparing food and not for washing. 
And Beit Hillel says that one can even light it, um, uh, a fire on a festival, even for, you know, even for washing. Um, and a person can, you know, make a big fire um, and warm himself. And it's a very, very short piece of Gemara here, uh, which really, you know, wanted to say, uh, really just sort of to figure out, um, you know, the, the halacha about the fire, about the Midura in particular, you know, who actually taught that? Was that, you know, is that part of Beit Hillel's statement or is that accepted uh, by Beit Hillel and by Beit Shammai? And so they basically bring in a brace of the shows. You know, Beit Shammai says you can't make a fire and Beit Hillel says that you, you can make a fire. So again, going through now a totally different scenario of, uh, of uh, you know, another era of, of, of Chag, but I think it's an important one. So this Mishnah actually is very practical because a lot of the halachot about whether or not you can shower, the, one of the issues about showering is getting the hot water, you know, is based on this particular Mishnah. Very practical indeed. Um, the next Mishnah, because again, we're, this stuff is long. There's so much on it. Um, the next Mishnah talks about, I find this actually really interesting, The it's Rabban Gamliel's handling of um, Beit Shammai stringencies. So as follows, meaning in general, Rabban Gamliel and everybody else will pass him like Beit Hill, but for these three things, they pass him like Beit Shammai. Namely, number one, so first of all, you don't um, tomnin, you don't insulate f- hot food, right, in a way that's going to continue to provide or to add the heat as an ideal situation, which of course is a little bit strange as compared to the way I think most people nowadays think about, well, you can cook onyantif as long as you've got pre-existing flames and so on. Um, here, hatamana, this idea of fully insulating um, or immersing within the heat, um, the food seems to be, as it says, it's a stringency of Beit Shammai. You don't straighten up a, a menorah, a, a candelabra, on Yantif, meaning presumably it started Yantif, you know, set up well, and then maybe it fell or something like that. You're not going to go back and fix it. Uh, on Yantif, uh, I think that's my understand. that's a shot understanding of it. I'm sure there's much more, um, there's many more intricacies to this because I see on my Gemara Daf, there's all kinds of pictures of exactly what that means, that you've got different component parts of this kind of menorah, of this kind of candelabra. Ve'en ofin pitin gritzin so this, I think, is the most interesting one of these cases here. You don't bake um, bread that is like kind of robust loaves of bread on Yantif. You take kind of thin, more like crackers, but maybe not that thin, but the idea is that it's going to be a thin loaf. For Again, this is where you're doing your baking on Yantif. It's not that you've baked in advance for Yantif. For, to do that, make your, make your thick loaves, that's fine. But if you're actually baking on Yantif, um, this is a stringency to say only only use thin loaves. Reverend Gamliel says, like, well, you know, why is it that he's being stringent here? He says, in the whole in the time of his father's household, meaning when he was growing up, they would never bake thick loaves on the festival, only the thin ones. Um, and the question is, so why is of course an interesting one. Um, the Mishnah here says, Amrulo. So the the Gemara, the Mishnah, I'm sorry, the Mishnah says here that they talk about his father's household as one of a kind. He says, 
Your father's household was machmer, was stringent to only bake the thin ones, but they certainly advised or were fine that everybody else of all of Am Yisrael could have the thick loaves and bake them in the coals, and that would be totally fine. The question seems to be like, why would you want the thin as opposed to the thick? Why is thick uh, leniency as opposed to the thin? And it seems to be a concern of, you know, are, do you have to do more labor-intensive uh, labor on on Yantif? And if the, and if so, then you know, stay away from that. Stick to just to, to doing something that's quicker and easier, and you'll have less malacha or near malacha activity, right? That seems to be the shot of the Mishnah. The Yerushalmi on this point comments and says, well, the concern seems to be that you're going to only bake what you need for Yantif. And if you have thick loaves, then you're at risk, obviously, of having much more than you're going to need, and then you've overdone what you might have needed for Yantif, so therefore bake thin loaves. Nowadays, we're not concerned about exceeding the amount that we use. You know, if we're going to have leftovers, that's okay, as long as what we bake is actually on Yantif itself. I really, again, just want to point out, I'm going to say it, I think every episode, just sort of the pace of which, like, we just sort of change topic to topic. But tomorrow, <laughs> we're sort of going to see the second half of this. You know, we sort of see, again, this is, it is a Beit Shama and Beit Hillel Mishnah. So I just want to point that out. This is more yeah, talking about Rabbi Gamliel. And I think the significance think here is, you know, he is the Rosh Beit Midrash. He's the Nasi, and he's really sort of setting down uh, you know, what the halach is supposed to be like. I, as my understanding is Rabban Gamliel II. Um, and, uh, you know, so his saying this is very significant. The next mission we're going to see is where he was Mekel. So, you know, it's, it's going to be sort of like an inverse mission and that's going to be on tomorrow's death. It balances it out. But again, I've got to say, as I keep saying, it's so nice to be talking about Yentif as we're smack in the middle of Yentif. You know, like, it, it's just very, um, we call it Inyana Dioma. It's topical. Yeah, it's very, it, this was, uh, it, this was, a, it's a month of a nascent star, as my father would say, that the, the month of the Chagim is when we're doing this Masachat. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP in our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.